You ever ask yourself, like, what am I supposed to do? You have those moments, those confusing moments where you're looking at a circumstance that's something you, you really couldn't be prepared for. A global pandemic, perhaps. A disappointing relationship, maybe with one of your kids. Some tensions at work. And you wonder, like, what, what, do, I, what do I do? What am I, what am I supposed to, What does God want me to do? in order to, like, get this fixed. Or, or maybe I can't get it fixed, but there's something in me that, that feels bad. Dark, ugly, mean-spirited, bitter. So, so what do I got to do, if not to fix the circumstance, at least to fix my own heart so that I'm, well, so, so that I'm good? So that I'm able to live well, feel good about myself, have confidence that I please God like, what am I supposed to do? Today, we're going to answer those questions by looking at the least read book of the Bible, Leviticus. And what's strange is we're not going to answer those questions by reading what's in Leviticus. We're going to answer those questions by reading what's not in Leviticus. Now, you, you know that the Bible is a big collection of books, right? 66 books. It's like a little library that you carry around in your pocket. And all those different books are different genres of literature. Like some of them are biographies, and some of them are short stories, and some of them are cones or aphorisms or wisdom literature, poetry. Well, Le Leviticus is a, a legal code, a ritualized, sacral code of, of religious rites. And it, it answers the question, what, what am I supposed to do? Who am I? How, how do I live? How do I atone? And how do I forgive? Now, in the ancient world, there are all kinds of religious rites and sacral codes. I mean, every culture, every religion had them. And, and you might not be a student of comparative religion. That, that's okay. But you still probably, in the back of your mind, know like the basics. You know, like the Egyptians had a whole religion based around uh, people with animal heads. You know, falcons, kitty cats, what I, or cats, you know, whatever. You, you know that in, in Canaanite religion, they had strange and scary gods. Molech, Marduk, Ashtoreth, Baal. I mean, they just, you, you know that. Now, what you probably don't know is that all of those ancient religions had some really strong similarities to one another. They all functioned on the same basic rules and premises. They had, they had different gods and goddesses, different angels and demons and supernatural powers, and they served different nationalities and different cultures, but they were all more or less the same. There was just one outlier, one peculiarity, and that was ancient Israelite religion. Now, of course, in our Bible, we don't have stuff about Egyptian religion or Canaanite religion or Mesopotamian or Sumerian, Akkadian religion, all that stuff. So, so we don't really get that our Bible has some loud silences, some obvious absences. But when you examine Leviticus in comparison to all those other things that are supposed to be the same, you realize uh, we left some stuff out like on purpose. And I think when we study what's not there, and then we contrast it with what is there, um, we're going to come to some pretty, well, pretty 
relevant contemporary conclusions. Because this isn't just a book about what they did back then. Well, this is about you and me now. So you ready? You ready for your first Leviticus sermon? I mean, I'm sure that at your last church, they just talked about Leviticus every week. But, you know, this time, this is a first for me and probably a first for you. So first thing that's missing is that there's nothing in Leviticus about kings, about what we call sacral kingship. I mean, every ancient culture believed that their king was the embodiment of their chief deity. Like, so, so the Egyptians believed that their, their pharaoh was an embodiment of Ra. The Canaanites believed that their, their kings and their chieftains, their tribal rulers, were embodiments of Baal. So that when the king talked, you knew, oh, this is, this is really the God talking. If I want to know how to make God happy, all i got to do is listen to the king. If I want to know what I'm supposed to do to ensure that I have healthy crops or a healthy family or that we make lots of babies and we're fertile, then the king will tell me what to do because the king knows God and the, the king is God. Well, there's nothing like that in Leviticus. I mean, they got all kinds of kings in Israel, but nobody ever thinks they're God. No, nobody really thinks they're all that great. In fact, as the Bible describes most of the kings in the Bible, it seems like the Bible and the prophets and all the people are like, yeah, we, we missed it with this guy. He, he's not really all we were hoping for. In fact, of the dozens and dozens of kings mentioned by name, I think there's six that are not terrible. And never is the king confused with God. Like, not even close. Which is weird for that world back then. The, the second notable difference in Leviticus is there's nothing in here at all about ancestors. Like, you, you probably have heard about ancient cultures having a, an ancestor cult or ancestor worship. You might have even met somebody today who, who's maybe from, from, the, from the Far East who still feels as though they're in communion with their ancestors, still feels like they're in, in, in conversation with their ancestors. Now, now in, the, in the West, we kind of think, oh yeah, my, uh, my dad's watching me. But that, that's not the same. No, to, to have your ancestors be a part of your life means, well, uh, you, you ever watch Star Wars? You know when Obi-Wan Kenobi shows up and he's blue and see-through? Like, it's, it's that. They believed they could talk to the ghost of their ancestors. They could commune with the spirit of their ancestors. That if they didn't know what to do, if they didn't know who they could trust, if they didn't know the way forward, their ancestors would sort of appear like cigarette smoke and tell them, Watch out for Uncle Bob. He's bad. Watch out for these guys over here. They're going to try and rip you off. Fall in love with this girl. She dreams about you at night. I mean, that, that's how they thought about it. But there's nothing at all about the ancestors in Leviticus. I mean, you hear from time to time that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? That wasn't a trick question. Sorry if I threw you for a loop there. Um, but again, that, that's a really thin understanding of the relationship they had with their ancestors, which is to say they, they remembered them, they honored them, but they weren't involved in their day-to-day -day life. Not, not the way it worked for everybody else. So everybody else looks to their king. Everybody else looks to their ancestors, but, but, but not God's people. Now, the 
third thing that's really missing from Leviticus that everybody else had was um, demons. So they believed there was a whole host of invisible powers that would tell you what to do. And you kind of entered into little deals with these demons. They'd tell you what to do, and you'd do it. And, and then, and then you'd, you'd keep going to them for advice. You'd keep going to them to be empowered. You'd keep going to them to deepen your sense of propriety and identity. I mean, these demons had real, real authority in the lives of ordinary people. Not you and I hear that. We go, what a bunch of crap, right? Who would ever, even if you believed in demons, who would ever ask a demon for something? But that was a huge part of ancient Near Eastern religion. And many homes had shrines in them to demons. So it'd be something off in the corner, you know, and maybe you, you might think, you know, as a contemporary parallel, maybe something like a Buddha statue or something like that. They would have these statues of Marduk or Molech or Ashtoreth, little poles and things that they'd decorate. And then they'd go and they'd pray at these, they'd look at these areas, and they'd ask for advice. What am I supposed to do? Sometimes they even had like pocket deities, pocket demons, which is a funny thing to say. I have a demon in my pocket. And they'd sort of carry him around, and, and periodically they'd, they'd consult this little demon. I don't know where I got this, but it came in really useful today. <laughs> it's a little red cat. I think it's Chinese, but whatever. So they'd have these things in their pockets, and they'd, they'd, they'd take them out, and they'd, they'd consult the demon. They'd look at the demon. They'd ask the demon for insight. And what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? What am I, what am I supposed to do? But this thing can't tell you what you're supposed to do. And even if you thought it could, you'd be nuts to listen to it. Because the truth is, like, kings, ancestors, demons, they can't tell you who you are. They can't tell you how to live. They cannot teach you how to atone or show you how to forgive. Now, of course, we know this. We're sophisticated. We're educated. I mean, the world has thankfully moved on. We don't consult demons anymore. We don't, we don't believe in all that mumbo-jumbo and Of course, we, well, wait a minute. Maybe we do. Like, we don't have kings. We're American. But we have government. And when we don't know what to do, we look for the government to tell us what to do. When we don't know who we are, A lot of times we, we abdicate our own story, our own identity, and wait for the government to tell us who we are. Now, I'm an American citizen born abroad. My parents were missionaries to the People's Republic of Canada. I was born in the West Coast, moved back home to the States, 
So I have dual citizenship, which means I have the right to criticize the government in two countries. And it concerns me when I see people forgetting who they are and wanting the government, the, the government, the government to tell them who they are. Like, you don't have to be even a careful student of history to know that government is a necessary evil. There's never been a good one. Ours is the best ever. Take a moment and absorb that for just a second. The government can't tell you who you are. The government can't tell you how to live. The government won't teach you how to atone. And they will never let you forgive. That's true of every government. Right, left, up, down, east, west, then, now. That's just not a power they have, no matter how much they want you to believe otherwise. As the people of God, we, we get our identity. We get our wisdom. We get our spirit from somewhere else. Don't you dare abdicate it to some name on a ballot or some person sitting on a chair. Neither a pastor nor a pope nor a politician. God help you. You, you have the spirit of God alive and at work inside of you. Educating you, leading you, guiding you. You, whether you're 12 or 200 years old, you have been made in the image and likeness of your creator. You are eternal. Do not let some temporary structure rob you of your dignity, your voice, your passion, or your concerns. Don't you dare. Do not demean yourself. Okay, Dave, that's the government. But what about ancestors? We have ancestors. Uh, but we don't, we don't really listen. Well, we have, we have family. We have friends and family. And they largely play the same role in our lives now, perhaps even more intensely than ancestors did in those ancient cults. Like, you, you got a, an awareness of your family name, right? Like, my last name is McDonald. When I'm around people that knew my dad, they're like, oh, that's Gordon's son. He's a McDonald. When I first moved to Jackson, I was convinced there were only six families that lived here. Such a small town. Everybody's got the same last name. You're like, wow, you, you need more people to move into town to just diversify this gene pool just a little bit. Because I don't know if I'm at an old folks home or a pharmacy, but it seems like everything's sort of the same. And so you know that your name has, has power. It sort of shapes you. People put expectations on you because of your name. People put expectations upon you because of your associations. They believe certain things about you. They whisper certain things in your ear. There's a lot of weight and a lot of pressure that comes from you being you. And don't get me wrong, family's good until it's not. Then it's really bad. And even good families will try and get you to do things that are not right. It could be that they're morally wrong. Or it could just be that they're not right for you. 
And well-meaning families put a ton of pressure for you to behave in ways that might actually rob you of your integrity, of your character, and of your perspective. And I don't just mean like well-meaning parents. Sometimes kids do that to their parents. Like let's say you got a wayward son or daughter. And you care about that kid. Man, that's, that's, your, that's your son. You would do anything for your son. And that's the problem right there because there's probably some things you shouldn't do. And so they'll violate boundaries and they'll hurt others and you'll defend them no matter what because they're your son. Until you've lost your center. Until you've lost your way. Because your family can't teach you who you are or how to live. Sometimes your family will tell you you don't need to atone and that you should never forgive. Now, of course, we don't have gods that we keep in our pocket, right? We're way beyond that. If you're a baby boomer or a baby builder, you're probably spending most of your social media time on Facebook. If you're a Gen Xer, you're probably spending most of your social media time on Instagram, statistically. If you're a millennial, you probably bounce back and forth between Snapchat, Instagram, um, Facebook's for dinosaurs, you don't go there. That's where everybody's mom gets mad at you. Uh, if you're a zennial, you, you're probably living on TikTok. Um, this is a necessary part of our world. Jesus said, be in the world, but not of it. Don't be conformed to the world. Now, I, I really like Instagram. I enjoy it very much. I'm trying to learn my way through TikTok. I find it fascinating. For me, I, I feel like I'm a cultural anthropologist every time I go on TikTok because it's just, well, it's, I'm just not from there, but I'm trying to immigrate. Um, but don't be deceived. These things can be demonic, by which I mean they are powerful, and they are invisible. They are contractual, and they promise you influence, insight, wisdom, and success if you'll just keep praying. Now, you better know that. You're not going to throw away your phone. Of course not. You're not going to get off social media. Sure, you might for a week or two or maybe six weeks, but this is, never mind the future, this, we are all here. But you, you better be smart about what's in here. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because this thing will make you mad. And this thing will make you hate. And this thing will turn you against people God has called you to love. And, and that's just what the other people you happen to see on here are going to help you do.
I don't think I'm even qualified to speak about the powers behind this power who decide what content you're allowed to see. I just know they're out there. And you better know they're out there too. Because this can't teach you who you are. And this can't teach you how to live. Can't teach you how to atone. Can't teach you how to forgive. Now, Leviticus leaves all that stuff out. Because neither the government, the media, or even your family can determine for you what is right. No, but what Leviticus has instead is three peculiarities. I mean, it's got stuff in there that nobody else really talked about, at least not in these ways, not even close. First, it's got a huge conversation about, about justice. And, and for the God of the Bible, justice is about more than just standing up for what's right. It's about being in harmony with all things to make them right and keep, it's, it's about sustainability. Like, consider this, okay? Psalm 146. Blessed is he whose help is in the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, who made the sea and everything therein, who keeps faith forever and executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food for the hungry. That then, that's weird. Who gives justice to the oppressed? Wouldn't we, God wants us to stand up for those who are weak, who can't stand up for themselves? Yeah. See, see, back then, if you were weak, that was a sign that God was mad at you, that God wasn't strengthening you, that God wasn't helping you. Weakness was a sign of sin. And into that mindset, God says, no, no, no. I gave you strength not so that you could use it to dominate others. I gave you strength so that you could use it to help others. How's that going for you? Because by implication, you ought to be stronger and stronger and stronger because strength is the way you show love. Back then, if you didn't have food, it's because God was mad at you. You screwed up, God sent a plague. You screwed up, God sent a famine. All your cattle died. All your sheep fell over. Global pandemic. God says, no. The person who has a need, who's hungry, that person ought to have their needs met by my people. We feed the hungry. We clothe the naked. We employ the poor. That's who we are. That's what we do. And there's a whole lot of people out there that think, oh, yeah, right, good. Then let's make sure that we get a government in there that will take care of everybody's problems. You, this is about you. You want to do something about world hunger? What's stopping you? Because if your answer is, it's not election time yet, you're drunk. You want to do something about racial inequality, prejudice, bigotry? What's stopping you? You got a dinner table. How about you open up your front door? 
How about you listen to the people in your neighborhood? No, 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 I, I really need, you know, my church to do no more. I, I really need the state to do more. I, education system's broken, and yep, you're right, and you're useless. In this book is a mandate for justice that we would look after each other. And not just other people. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the seas and the fullness thereof. The planet this is, our, this is our home. We have one. And maybe Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and that British guy with the fake teeth, maybe they'll all colonize Mars. They'll probably get lost in Uranus. We got to take care of this place. And not just the planet, but the non-human inhabitants, the, the dogs, the animals, sharks. Like the, God gave these things to you. He entrusted these things to you and to me to look after. And uh, nobody else back then was talking like that. Except the people of God. The second thing that that's in here, that's not anywhere else, is the idea of a covenant. Now, a covenant is a, a fancy term. It means a contract. A spiritual contract. Um, but what's peculiar about the contract that Yahweh makes with his people, that God makes with you, is that it's not just about, like, your work or your property or your money. It's about those things. But more significantly, it's about your mind and it's about your heart. Now, we sometimes think, well, yeah, Old Testament full of do's and don'ts, terrible religion, bunch of rules, very barbaric, but, you know, then thanks be to God, we get to Jesus, and he's like so love, dove, Woodstock, you know, love that hippie Jesus, Gandhi guy, he's amazing. No, when Jesus preached, when Jesus spoke, when Jesus... Jesus taught. Guess what he was teaching? Love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know where that was first written? In Deuteronomy. Jesus is quoting from the parts of the Bible that we think are just rules to guess what? Give us the rule to love each other. To remind us that what God cares about is what's going on in your head. And your head is a mess, man. You've got negative thoughts, suicidal thoughts, depressed thoughts. You are anxious. You, you, you are riddled with self-doubt and with negativity. You've got hamster wheels within hamster wheels within hamster wheels telling you that you are not worth it, that you are a waste of time, that everyone would be better without you, that you are doomed to failure. You've got all that stuff up there, and God says, I'll make you a deal. Give 
Give me your mind and I will heal it. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think, man, I think we forgot that. I think we need it. And not just your mind, but your heart. What you love, your dreams, your ambitions, your desires. What's peculiar about Leviticus is the emphasis that God sees you as a, wait for it, a person. You don't just do things for God. You don't even just do things with God. You belong to God. And he wants to take care of you. He wants to teach you who you are and how you live. How to atone and how to forgive. You want to be good, just, right? You love and serve others. You want to get into a covenant with your creator? Good, because God wants your mind as much as he wants your heart. Third peculiar feature, which is always my favorite one to talk about of this ancient Israelite religion, is a circumcision, which my friend Simone calls a snip of the tip. Thank you, Simone. So when the foreskin of the male penis is cut off, sometimes kept, sometimes burned in a fire, it was a sign that you were in a covenant with God. I, I don't know that we talk about circumcision enough, really. I'm delighted by the opportunity. But let's at least acknowledge that's a, that's a sacrifice. It's going to cost you something. Especially if, as was often the case, you were an adult male entering into the covenant. It was a sign that you said, okay, like I, I'm going to go through the process. Back then, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach the priest. I'm going to have the conversation. I'm going to pay the money. I'm going to set the appointment. I'm going to ritually purify myself for days and days and days. And then I'm going to come in an attitude of prayerful holiness and thanksgiving. I'm going to go through something that costs me something that hurts me and I will never forget it. Now I've been a pastor for almost 27 years. Here since 2005 I can tell you the great majority of Christians don't want it to cost anything at all. And, and why should it? You know, Grace is free. If Jesus gives me grace for free why should the church demand that I Help somebody else. Mercy is free. So why should I be expected to do something for somebody else? Because you're not meant to merely be a recipient of grace. God has called you to participate in offering others. Well, how do you do that? Well, you could do it in some really fancy ways. Become a spiritual director. Become a discipleship coach. Get involved in leading and teaching classes. Well, but I, I don't have those gifts. Well, that's okay. Not everybody does.
Can you make coffee? You rock babies in the nursery? Set up chairs? Well, I, I, I really like the garden. Good news. You can do everything as unto the Lord. You can literally do anything and with the right spirit and with the right orientation make it a meaningful act of service to others. But, it, but it's going to cost you. I mean, for it really. And, you know, in my experience, which is limited, you know, 45 countries, four degrees, six seminaries, uh, two hometowns, almost 30 years of being a pastor. So limited experience. The people who hate their experience of church are the people who don't serve and don't give. Those are the people who complain. Those are the people who are really good at finding out what's wrong with the church today. You want to find out what's right with the church? <laughs> so much easier when you try it. And what I find fascinating about the covenant of circumcision is not just that it's costly, um, but that it notes a difference between ritual and physical sexual identity and reproduction. Like, you're, you're born a certain way, right? Male, female, whatever. You have babies a certain way. Sure. That's, that's who you are as a physical human being. But what about who you are spiritually, ritually? Like, have you ever considered that your sexual identity might be part of what God wants? That, that the way you relate, the things you want, how, how you function, that, that God might look down and go, I, I know this is really important to you. I know this is really pleasurable for you. I know that this is where you feel union and communion with another. I, I know. I made it that way. So how about, how about you let me share it with you? Like we're so afraid if we let God in to our sexual mores, identity, preferences, practices, that God will what, wreck it? You think he made something great so that he could smash it in your face? And all of us, we were made to reproduce sexually, but also reproduce ideas, re reproduce a, a spirit. Whether it's in music or, or art or business, in relationships, we, we are always giving birth to something. You, you don't think there's a difference between just doing that on your own and doing that as a reasonable act of service to God Almighty? Oh, well, it's a huge difference. And the covenant of circumcision, man, it, it reminds us that there is not one square inch of your life that has not been claimed by God 
that is not desired by God for your benefit and your enjoyment. And make no mistake, man, you are in a battle for your identity. Don't let somebody else fix it. They want to define you as, you know, straight, gay, black, white, whatever, Republican, Democrat, Canadian, American. They want to define you. You, you are already you. You don't need to satisfy the little boxes they have on their surveys. You don't need to satisfy the hiring quotients that they have because you have already satisfied God and been satisfied by Christ. And all those people, all those institutions, all those things, they want to tell you who you are and how to live. But they won't teach you how to atone. And they don't think you need to forgive. That's why at your very core, you've got to find yourself in God. And it's tough to do that right now, man. What a crazy time. It's not going to get any less crazier. Like in the next 18 to 24 months, you are not going to ask the question less, what am I supposed to do? What the heck is going on? It is a difficult time. A time of frustration and anger and tension. A time of remarkable division. But good news, man. Faith is fueled by affliction. And rather than running away from difficulty, no, true believers run into it. This is why we have faith. This is why God gave us his spirit, his word, his church, his law for just a time as this. And so you got to decide for you who you are and how you're going to live. All that for which you need to atone and everybody who you must forgive. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for the power and provocation of your word, for the timeless truth of your scripture. And we need you, Lord. There's too much in here for us to absorb, let alone apply in one short Bible lesson. I mean, it's too big. But life is long. And we believe that you slowly but surely, faithfully and persistently are working through us to heal the world. So God, lead us, guide us, teach us, and show us your way. In Jesus' name, amen.